Chapter 10 of the Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt Troutwine. The Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. Chapter 10 The Night Operator, Part 2. By Frank L. Packard. Toddles froze instantly, hard. His fist doubled. There was a smile on Duncan's face. Then his fist slowly uncurled. The smile on Duncan's face had broadened, but there wasn't any malice in the smile. Christopher Hyslop Hoogan, said Toddles, unbending. Duncan put his hand quickly to his mouth and coughed. Mmm, said he pleasantly. Super hard on yourself this morning, Hoogan? And with the words, Toddles's heart went out to the big dispatcher. Hoogan and a man-to-man -to -man tone. No, said Toddles cordially. Say, I thought you were on the night trick. Double shift, short-handed, replied Duncan. Come from New York, don't you? Yes. Mother and father down there still? It came quick and unexpected, and Toddles stared for a moment. Then he walked over to the window. I haven't got any, he said. There wasn't any sound for an instant, save the clicking of the instruments. Then Duncan spoke again. A little gruffly. When are you going to quit making a fool of yourself? Toddles swung from the window, hurt. Duncan, after all, was like all the rest of them. Well, prompted the dispatcher. You go to blazes, said Toddles bitterly, and started for the door. Duncan halted him. You're only fooling yourself, Hoogan, he said coolly. If you wanted what you call a real railroad job as much as you pretend you do, you'd get one. Eh? demanded toddles defiantly and went back to the table a fellow said duncan putting a little sting into his words never got anywhere by going around with a chip on his shoulder fighting everybody because they called him toddles and making a nuisance of himself with the big fellows until they got sick of the sight of him it was a pretty stiff arraignment toddles choked over it and the angry blood flushed to his cheeks that's all right for you he spluttered out hotly you don't look too small for the train crews or the roadhouse they don't call you Toddles, so nobody'll forget it. What do you do? I'll tell you what I'd do, said Duncan quietly. I'd make everybody on the division wish their own name was Toddles before I was through with them, and I'd make a job for myself. Toddles blinked helplessly. Getting right down to a cash fare, continued Duncan, after a moment, as Toddles did not speak. They're not so far wrong, either, about you sizing up pretty small for the train crews or the roundhouse, are they? No, admitted Toddles reluctantly. But then why not something where there's no handicap hanging over you, suggested the dispatcher, and his hand reached out and touched the sender. The key, for instance? But I don't know anything about it, said Toddles, still helplessly. That's just it, returned Duncan smoothly. You never tried to learn. Toddles' eyes widened, and into Toddles' heart leaped a sudden joy. A new world seemed to open out before him in which aspirations, ambitions, longings, all were a reality. A key, that was real railroading. The top notch of railroading, too. First an operator, and then a dispatcher, and, and... And then his face fell, and the vision faded. How do I get a chance to learn? He said miserably. Who teach me? The smile was back on Duncan's face as he pushed his chair from the table, stood up, and held out his hand, man-to-man -man fashion. I will, he said. I liked your grit last night, Hoogan, and if you want to be a railroad man, 
I'll make you one before I'm through. I've got some old instruments you can have to practice with, and I've got nothing to do in my spare time. What do you say? Toddles didn't say anything. For the first time since Toddles' advent to the Hill Division, there were tears in Toddles' eyes for someone else to see. Duncan laughed. All right, old man, you're on. See that you don't throw me down. And keep your mouth shut. You'll need all your wind. It's the work that counts, and nothing else. Now chase yourself. I'll dig up the things you'll need, and you can drop in here and get them when you come off your run tonight. Spare time. Bob Duncan didn't have any spare time those days, but that was Duncan's way. Spence sick and two men handling the dispatching where three had handled it before didn't leave Bob Duncan much spare time. Not much, but a boost for the kid was worth the sacrifice. Duncan went at it as earnestly as Toddles did, and Toddles was in deadly earnest. When Toddles left the dispatcher's office that morning with Duncan's promise to teach him the key, Toddles had a hazy idea that Duncan had wings concealed somewhere under his coat and was an angel in disguise, and at the end of two weeks, he was sure of it. But at the end of a month, Bob Duncan was a god. Throw Bob Duncan down. Toddles would have sold his soul for the dispatcher. It wasn't easy, though, and Bob Duncan wasn't an easy-going taskmaster. Not by a long shot. Duncan had a tongue, and on occasions could use it, short and quick in his explanations. He expected his pupil to get it short and quick, either that or Duncan's opinion of him. But Toddles stuck. He'd have crawled on his knees for Duncan anywhere, and he worked like a major, not only for his own advancement, but for what he came to prize quite as much, if not more, Duncan's approval. Toddles, mindful of Duncan's words, didn't fight so much as the days went by though he found it difficult to swear off all at once, and on his runs he studied his Morse code, and he had the calls of every station on the division off by heart right from the start. Toddles mastered the sending by leaps and bounds, but the taking came slower, as it does for everybody. But even at that, at the end of six weeks, if it wasn't thrown at him too fast and hard, Toddles could get it after a fashion. Take it all around, Toddles felt like whistling most of the time and, pleased with his own progress, looked forward to starting in presently as a full-fledged operator. He mentioned the matter to Bob Duncan once. Duncan picked his words and spoke fervently. Toddles never brought the subject up again. And so things went on. Late summer turned to early fall, and early fall to still sharper weather, until there came a night that the operator at Blind River muddled his orders and gave number 73, the westbound fast freight, her clearance against the second section of the eastbound limited that doomed them to meet somewhere head-on in the glacier canyon the night that toddles but there's just a word or two that comes before when it was all over it was up to sam beale the blind river operator straight enough beale blundered that's all there is to it that covers it all he blundered it would have finished beale's railroad career forever and today only beale played the man and the instant he realized what he had done, even while the taillights of the freight were disappearing down the track and he couldn't stop her, he was stammering the tale of his mistake over the wire, the sweat beads dripping from his wrist, his face gray with horror, to Bob Duncan under the green-shaded lamp in the dispatcher's room at Big Cloud, miles away. Duncan got the miserable story over the chattering wire, got it before it was half told, cut Beale out and began to pound the gap call, and as though it were before him in reality, that stretch of track, fifteen miles of it, from Blind River to the Gap, 
unfolded itself like a grisly panorama before his mind. There wasn't a half mile of tangent at a single stretch in the whole of it. It swung like the writhings of a snake, through cuts and tunnels, hugging the canyon walls, twisting this way and that. Anywhere else there might be a chance, one in a thousand even, that they could see each other's headlights in time. Here it was a disaster, quick and absolute. Duncan's lips were set in a thin, straight line. The gap answered him, and the answer was like a knell of doom. He had not expected anything else. He had only hoped against hope. The second section of the Limited had pulled out of the gap eastbound, two minutes before. The two trains were in the open against each other's orders. In the next room, Carlton and Regan, over their pipes, were at their nightly game of Pedro. Duncan called them, and his voice sounded strange to himself. Chairs scraped and crashed to the floor, and an instant later the super and the master mechanic were in the room. What's wrong, Bob? Carlton flung the words from him in a single breath. Duncan told him, but his fingers were on the key again as he talked. There was still one chance, worse than the thousand-to-one shot, but it was the only one. Between the Gap and Blind River, eight miles from the Gap, seven miles from Blind River, was Castle Siding, but there was no nightman at Castle's, and the little town lay a mile from the station. It was ten o'clock. Duncan's watch lay face up on the table before him. The dayman at Castle's went off at seven. The chance was that the dayman might have come back to the station for something or other. Not much of a chance, no, not much. It was a possibility, that was all. And Duncan's fingers worked, the seventeen. The life and death, calling, calling on the night trick to the dayman at Castle's sighting. Carlton came and stood at Duncan's elbow, and Reagan stood at the other, and there was silence now, save only for the key that, under Duncan's fingers, seemed to echo its stammering appeal about the room like the sobbing of a human soul. C.S. 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 Duncan called, and then, the seventeen, and then, hold second number two, and then the same thing, over and over again, and there was no answer. It had turned cold that night, and there was a fire in the little heater. Duncan had opened the draft a little while before, and the sheet-iron sides now began to purr red-hot. Nobody noticed it. Reagan's kindly, good-humored face had the stamp of horror in it, and he pulled at his scraggly brown mustache, his eyes seemingly fascinated by Duncan's fingers. Everybody's eyes, the three of them, were on Duncan's fingers and the key. Carlton was like a man of stone, motionless, his face set harder than a face was ever carved in marble. It grew hot in the room, but Duncan's fingers were like ice on the key, and, strong man though he was, he faltered. Oh, my God, he whispered, and never a prayer rose more fervently from the lips of those three broken words. Again he called, and again, and again. Three minutes slipped away. Still he called, with the life and death, the seventeen called and called and there was no answer save the echo in the room that brought the perspiration streaming down from Bregan's face, a harder light into Carlton's eyes, and a chill like death into Duncan's heart. Suddenly, Duncan pushed back his chair and his fingers from the key, touched the crystal of his watch. The second section will have passed castles now, he said in a curious, unnatural, matter-of-fact tone. It'll bring them together about a mile east of here, in another minute. And then Carlton spoke. Master Railroader, Royal Carlton. It was up to him, then, all the pity of it, the ruin, the disaster, the lives out, all the bitterness to cope with as he could, and it was in his eyes, all of it. But his voice was quiet. It rang quick, peremptory, 
his voice, but quiet. Clear the line, Bob, he said. Plug in the roundhouse for the wrecker, and tell them to send uptown for the crew. Toddles. What did Toddles have to do with this? Well, a good deal in one way or another. We're coming to Toddles now. You see, Toddles, since his fracas with Hawkeye, had been put on the Elk River local run that left Big Cloud at 9.45 in the morning for the run west, and scheduled Big Cloud again on the return trip at 10.10 in the evening. It had turned cold that night, after a day of rain. Pretty cold. The thermometer can drop on occasions in the late fall in the mountains. And by 8 o'clock, where there had been rain before, there was now a thin sheeting of ice over everything. Very thin. You know the kind. Rails and telegraph wires glistening like the decorations on a Christmas tree. Very pretty, and also very nasty running on a mountain grade. Likewise, the rain, in a way rain has, had dripped from the car roofs to the platforms. The local did not boast of any closed vegetables, and also had been blown upon the car steps with the sweep of the wind, and having frozen, it stayed there. Not a very serious matter. Annoying, perhaps, but not serious. Demanding a little extra caution, that was all. Toddles was in high fettle that night. He had been getting on famously as of late. Even Bob Duncan had admitted it. Toddles, with his stack of books and magazines, an unusually big one, for a number of the new periodicals were out that day, was dreaming rosy dreams to himself as he started from the door of the first-class smoker to the door of the first-class coach. In another hour now, he'd be up in the dispatcher's room at Big Cloud for his nightly sitting with Bob Duncan. He could see Bob Duncan there now, and he could hear the big dispatcher growl at him in his bluff way. Use your head, use your head, Hoogan. It was always Hoogan, never Toddles. Use your head. Duncan was everlastingly drumming that into him. For the dispatcher used to confront him suddenly with imaginary and hair-raising emergencies and demand Toddles' instant solution. Toddles realized that Duncan was getting to the heart of things, and that some day he, Toddles, would be a great dispatcher like Duncan. Use your head, Hoogan. That's the way Duncan talked. Anybody can learn to key, but that doesn't make a railroad man. Think quick and think right. Use your... Toddles stepped out on the platform and walked on ice. But that wasn't Toddles' undoing. The trouble with Toddles was that he was walking on air at the same time. It was treacherous running. They were nosing a curve, and in the cab, Canard, at the throttle, checked with a little jerk at the air. And with a jerk, Toddles slipped. And with a slip, the center of gravity of the stack of periodicals shifted, and they bulged ominously from the middle. Toddles grabbed at them, and his heels went out from under him. He ricocheted down the steps, snatched desperately at the handrail, missed it, shot out from the train, and head, heels, arms, and body go every which way at once, rolled over and over down the embankment. And, starting from the point of Toddles' departure from the train, the right-of-way for a hundred yards was strewn with the latest magazines and new books just out today. Toddles lay there, a little curled huddled heap, motionless in the darkness. The taillights of the local disappeared. No one aboard would miss Toddles until they got into Big Cloud and found him gone which is Irish for saying that no one would attempt to keep track of a newsboy's idiosyncrasies on a train. It would be asking too much of any train crew, and besides, there was no mention of it in the rules. It was a long while before Toddles stirred, a very long while before consciousness crept back slowly to him. Then he moved, tried to get back up, and fell back with a quick, sharp cry of pain. 
He lay there still, then for a moment. His ankle hurt him frightfully, and his back, and his shoulder too. He put his hand to his face where something seemed to be trickling warm and brought it away wet. Toddles, grim little warrior, tried to think. They hadn't been going very fast when he fell off. If they had, he would have been killed. As it was, he was hurt, badly hurt, and his head swam, nauseating him. Where was he? Was he near any help? He'd have to get help somewhere, or, or with the cold and, and everything. He'd probably die out here before morning. Toddles shouted out again and again. Perhaps his voice was too weak to carry very far. Anyway, there was no reply. He looked up at the top of the embankment, clamped his teeth, and started to crawl. If he got up there, perhaps he could tell where he was. It had taken Toddles a matter of seconds to roll down. It took him ten minutes of untold agony to get up. Then he dashed his hand across his eyes where the blood was, and cried a little with a surge of relief. East, down the track, only a few yards away, the green eye of a switch lamp winked at him. Where there was a switch lamp, there was a siding, and where there was a siding, there was a promise of a station. Toddles, with a sudden uplift upon him, got to his feet and started along the track. Two steps, and went down again. He couldn't walk. The pain was more than he could bear. His right ankle, his left shoulder, and his back. Hopping only made it worse. It was easier to crawl. And so Toddles crawled. It took him a long time even to pass the switchlight. The pain made him weak. His senses seemed to trail off grittily every now and then, and he'd find himself lying flat and still beside the track. It was a white, drawn face that Toddles lifted up each time and started again, miserably white, except where the blood kept trickling from his forehead. And then Toddles' heart, stout as it was, seemed to snap. He had reached the station platform, wondering vaguely why the little building that loomed ahead was dark. And now it came to him in a flash, as he recognized the station. It was Castle Siding, and there was no nightman at Castle Siding. The switch lights were lighted before the dayman left, of course. Everything swam before Toddles' eyes. There, there was no help here. And yet, yet perhaps desperate hope came again. Perhaps there might be. The pain was terrible, all over him, and, and he'd got so weak now. But it wasn't far to the door. Toddles squirmed along the platform, and reached the door finally, only to find it shut and fastened. And then Toddles fainted on the threshold. When Toddles came to himself again, he thought at first that he was up in the dispatcher's room at Big Cloud with Bob Donkin pounding away at the battered old key that they used to practice with. Only there seemed to be something the matter with the key, and it didn't sound as loud as it usually did. It seemed to come from a long way off somehow. And then, besides, Bob was working it faster than he had ever done before when they were practicing. Hold second. Second something. Tuttles couldn't make it out. Then the seventeen. Yes, he knew that. That was the life and death. Bob was going pretty quick, though. Then, C.S., C.S., C.S. Toddles' brain fumbled a bit over that. Then it came to him. C.S. was the call for Castle Siding. Castle's Siding. Toddles' head came up with a jerk. A little cry burst from Toddles' lips, and his brain cleared. He wasn't at Big Cloud at all. He was at Castle Siding, and he was hurt, and that was the sounder inside calling, calling frantically for Castle Siding, where he was. The life and death. The seventeen. It sent a thrill through Toddles' pain-twisted spine. He wriggled to the window. It, too, was closed, of course. 
but he could hear better there. The sounder was babbling madly. Hold second. He missed it again, and, as on top of it, the seventeen came pleading, frantic, urgent. He wrung his hands. Hold second. He got it this time. Number two. Toddles' first impulse was to smash in the window and reach the key. And then, like a dash of cold water over him, Duncan's words seemed to ring in his ears. Use your head. With the seventeen, it meant a matter of minutes, perhaps even seconds. Why smash the window? Why waste the moment required to do it simply to answer the call? The order stood for itself. Hold second, number two. That was the second section of the limited eastbound. Hold her. How? There was nothing. Not a thing to stop her with. Use your head, said Duncan in a faraway voice to Toddles' wobbling brain. Toddles looked up the track west where he had come from, to where the switchlight twinkled green at him, and, with a little sob, he started to drag himself back along the platform. If he could throw the switch, it would throw the light from green to red, and, and the limited would take the sighting. But the switch was a long way off. Toddles half fell, half bumped from the end of the platform to the right of way. He cried to himself with low moans as he went along. He had the heart of a fighter and grit to the last tissue, but he needed it all now, needed it all to stand the pain and fight the weakness that kept swirling over him in flashes. On he went, on his hands and knees, slithering from tie to tie, and from one tie to the next was a great distance. The life and death, the dispatcher's call, he seemed to hear it yet, throbbing, throbbing on the wire. On he went, up the track and the green eye of the lamp winking at him drew nearer. And then suddenly, clear and mellow through the mountains, caught up and echoed far and near, came the notes of a chime whistle ringing down the gorge. Fear came upon Toddles then, and a great sob shook him. That was the limited coming now. Toddles' fingers dug into the ballast, and he hurried, that is, in bitter pain, he tried to crawl a little faster. And as he crawled, he kept his eyes strained up the track, she wasn't in sight yet around the curve, not yet, anyway. Another foot, only another foot, and he could reach the siding switch, in time, in plenty of time. Again the sob, but now in a burst of relief that, for the moment, made him forget his hurts. He was in time. He flung himself at the switch lever, tugged upon it, and then, trembling, every ounce of remaining strength seemed to ooze from him. He covered his face with his hands. It was locked, padlocked came a rumble now, a distant roar, growing louder and louder, reverberating down the canyon walls, louder and louder, nearer and nearer. Hold second number two, hold second number two. The seventeen, the life and death, pleading with him to hold number two. And she was coming now, coming and, and the switch was locked. The deadly nausea racked Toddles again. There was nothing to do now, nothing. He couldn't stop her, couldn't stop her. He tried very hard, and, and he couldn't stop her now. He took his hands from his face and stole a glance up the track, afraid almost, with the horror that was upon him, to look. She hadn't swung the curve yet, but she would in a minute, and, compounding down the stretch at fifteen miles an hour, shoot by him like a rocket to where, somewhere ahead, in some form, he did not know what, only knew that it was there, death and ruin and, use your head! snapped Duncan's voice to his consciousness. Toddles' eyes were on the light above his head. It blinked red at him as he stood on the track facing it, 
The green rays were shooting up and down the line. He couldn't swing the switch, but the lamp was there, and there was a red side to show just by turning it. He remembered then that the lamp fitted into a socket at the top of the switch stand and could be lifted off if he could reach it. It wasn't very high for an ordinary-sized man. For an ordinary-sized man to get at it and trim and fill it daily, only Toddles wasn't an ordinary-sized man. It was just nine or ten feet above the rails, just a standard siding switch. Toddles gritted his teeth and climbed upon the base of the switch and nearly fainted as his ankle swung against the rod. A foot above the base was a footrest for a man to stand on and reach up for the lamp, and Toddles drew himself up and got his foot on it, and then, at his full height, the tips of his fingers only just touched the bottom of the lamp. Toddles cried aloud, and the tears streamed down his face now. Oh, if he weren't hurt, if he could only shin up another foot, but, but it was all he could do to hang there where he was. What was that? He turned his head, up the track, sweeping in a great circle as it swung the curve. A headlight's glare cut through the night, and Toddles shinned the foot. He tugged and tore at the lamp, tugged and tore at it, loosened it, lifted it from the socket, sprawled and wriggled with it to the ground, and turned the red side of the lamp against the second number two. The quick, short blast of a whistle answered, then the crunch and grind and scream of biting brake shoes. And the big mountain racer, the 1012, pulling the second section of the Limited that night, stopped with its pilot nosing a diminutive figure in a torn silver button uniform, whose hair was clotted red and whose face was covered with blood and dirt. Masters, the engineer, and Pete Leroy, his fireman, swung from the gangways. Kelly, the conductor, came running up from the forward coach. Kelly shoved his lamp into Toddles' face and whistled low under his breath. Toddles? He gasped, and then, quick as steel trap, what's wrong? I don't know, said Toddles weakly. There's, there's something wrong. Get into the clear, on the siding. Something wrong, repeated Kelly, and you don't. But Masters cut the conductor short with a grab at the other's arm that was like the shutting of a vice, and then bolted for his engine like a gopher for its hole. From down the track came the heavy, grumbling roar of a freight. Everybody flew then, and there was quick work done in the next half minute, and none too quickly done. The Limited was no more than on the siding when the fast freight rolled her long string of flats, boxes, and gondolas thundering by, and while she passed, Toddles on the platform stammered out his story to Kelly. Kelly didn't say anything, then. With the express messenger and the brakeman carrying Toddles, Kelly kicked in the station door and set his lamp down on the operator's table. Hold me up, whispered Toddles, and, while they held him, he made the dispatcher's call. Big Cloud answered him on the instant. Haltingly, Toddles reported the second section in and the freight out. Only he did it very slowly, and he couldn't think very much more, for things were going black. He got an order for the Limited to run to Blind River and told Kelly, and got the complete. And then Big Cloud asked who was on the wire, and Toddles answered that in a mechanical sort of way without quite knowing what he was doing, and went limp in Kelly's arms. And as Toddles answered, back in Big Cloud, Reagan, the sweat still standing out in great beads on his forehead, fierce now in the revulsion of relief, glared over Duncan's left shoulder. As Duncan's left hand scribbled on a pad what was coming over the wire, Reagan glared fiercely, then he spluttered, Who's Christopher Hyslop Hoogan, hmm? Duncan's lips had a queer smile on them. Toddles, he said. Reagan sat down heavily in his chair. What? demanded the super. Toddles, said Duncan. 
I've been trying to drum a little railroading into him, on the key. Reagan wiped his face. He looked helplessly from Duncan to the super, and then back again at Duncan. But, but what's he doing at Castle Siding? How'd he get there, huh? Hmm? How'd he get there? I don't know, said Duncan, his fingers rattling the Castle Siding call again. He doesn't answer anymore. We'll have to wait for the story till they make Blind River, I guess. And so they waited, and presently at Blind River, Kelly, dictating to the operator, not Beale, Beale's day man, told the story. It lost nothing in the telling. Kelly wasn't that kind of man. He told them what Toddles had done and left nothing out. And he added that they had Toddles on a mattress in the baggage car, with the doctor they had discovered amongst the passengers looking after him. At the end, Carlton tamped down on the Doddle in the bowl of his pipe thoughtfully with his forefinger and glanced at Dawkin. Got along far enough to take the station key somewhere? He inquired casually. He's made a pretty good job of it as a night operator at Castles. Duncan was smiling. Not yet, he said. No? Carlton's eyebrows went up. Well, let him come in here with you, then, till he has, and when you say he's ready. We'll see what he can do. I guess it's coming to him, and I guess... He shifted his glance to the master mechanic. I guess we'll go down and meet number two when she comes in, Tommy. Reagan grinned. With our hats in our hands, said the big-hearted master mechanic. Duncan shook his head. Don't you do it, he said. I don't want him to get a swelled head. Carlton stared, and Reagan's hand, reaching into his back pocket for his chewing, stopped midway. Duncan was still smiling. I'm going to make a railroad man out of Toddles, he said. End of chapter 10, part 2. Read by Kurt Troutwine.